are going to welcome uh, Pastor Allison, so let's uh, welcome her as she comes. All right, good morning, everyone. As Mike said, um, my name is Allison, and I'm the executive pastor here at the River. So we're currently in the Lenten season in the church calendar, which is the six-week period leading up to Easter. Here at the River, we call this time 40 Days of Faith, and this year we're taking a closer look at five fruits of agape. So far, we have considered resilience and inclusivity, and today I'll be talking about authenticity. So authenticity is a buzzword in our culture these days. We hear it used to describe a myriad of things, including food, art, branding initiatives, workplace culture, and much more. There are important discussions to be had in all of those areas, but that's not what I'm here to talk about today. So in this sermon, I'll be focusing on what it means to live an authentic life. But side note, if you are interested in reading more about the complexity of using the word authentic to describe food in particular, please let me know. Um, I can send you a great article um, from Eater. Okay, but back to today's topic. So <clears throat> many people mistakenly believe that being authentic means verbalizing every thought or feeling that goes through our heads or acting on every impulse we experience. Let me be clear. When rooted in unconditional agape love, that is not what authenticity looks like. Agape-rooted authenticity does not give us free reign to feel virtuous while acting like a jerk or to carelessly hurt others with our honesty. Mind Tools um, has a definition for authenticity that I find to be particularly helpful. It says, put simply, authenticity means you're true to your own personality, values, and spirit, regardless of the pressure that you're under to act otherwise. You're honest with yourself and with others, and you take responsibility for your mistakes. Your values, ideals, and actions align. As a result, you come across as genuine, and you're willing to accept the consequences of being true to what you consider to be right. So let's break that down a bit. Authenticity is about being true to who you are. It's about being honest with yourself and with others in ways that are life-giving. It's about acting in ways that align with your values. It's about taking responsibility for and accepting the consequences of your actions. And it means doing all of this despite any internal or external pressure to do otherwise. Living authentically is not easy. It requires considerable courage, confidence, intentionality, humility, and self-awareness. But I believe that it is worth pursuing because it can pave the way for deeper connections with others, for improved health, both mental and physical, and for greater personal fulfillment. Pursuing authenticity can also help us move towards unconditional agape love. Loving ourselves, 
others and God unconditionally means loving what is real and true. It's easier to do this when we actually know what is real and true in ourselves and in others. Authenticity paves the way for that kind of knowing. So today, we're going to take a look at some key moments in the life of Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. I believe that Peter's story can give us some helpful insights into what it means to live authentically. So let's start by taking a look at the first encounter between Jesus and Peter, or rather, Simon, the name he went by back then. Simon's brother, Andrew, was excited to introduce Simon to Jesus. When Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So, you know, I wonder if the encounter went down exactly like that. Uh, Because, I mean, Jesus, he just met this guy, and then the first thing he did was give him a new name, (laughs) right? So, that's pretty interesting. Um, But whether it happened exactly like that or not, it's important for us to consider this meeting within the larger tradition of renaming in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, there are many instances of individuals being renamed, either by God or by themselves. Typically, the new name would be a word with significant meaning used to establish or reflect the individual's new identity or purpose. Cephas is a masculine name of Aramaic origin, meaning rock. It is derived from the Aramaic word kephas, which means rock or stone. Cephas is translated as Peter because the Greek word petros means rock or stone. Now, what do you think a rock might symbolize in terms of identity or purpose? To me, a person who is like a rock is someone who is grounded, patient, and steadfast. Did renaming Peter mean that he automatically became like a rock and took on these qualities? No, of course not. But the new name did give Peter some clarity about the direction he was heading and the values that he would come to hold dear, the values that he would later center in his own journey towards authenticity. We don't know what Peter was like before he met Jesus, but we do learn a lot about him in the Gospels. We see Peter jump out of a boat and try to walk on water. We see him refuse to let Jesus wash his feet And then when challenged by Jesus, go overboard to compensate, saying, wash my hands and head too. We see Peter cut off a man's ear in defense of Jesus. We'll get to that part of the story in a bit. Um, But based on these stories and others, many people would describe Peter as the opposite of grounded, patient, and steadfast. Instead, they might say he was overly emotional, impulsive, and insecure. However, you know, if these flaws were framed more charitably, Peter could also be described as passionate, decisive, and movable. After all, our strengths and weaknesses are often two sides of the same coin, and there are 
are many ways to think about what a rock symbolizes. So let's take a closer look at a particular conversation between Peter and Jesus. The night before Jesus was killed, he ate dinner with his disciples. This was Jesus' final opportunity, while still with his friends on earth, to convey his love for them, to offer them words of wisdom, and to warn them about what was to come. At some point in the evening, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. All right, so you might be wondering why he was called Simon here and not Peter. Great question. Um, So the short answer is that earlier we were in the book of John, and now we're in the book of Luke. Um, And these gospels differ over a number of things, including the exact timing of when Simon began going by Peter, and also whether or not that change was absolute or more fluid in nature. You may also be wondering about the role of Satan in this passage. Sorry to disappoint you, but I am not going to get into that during this sermon, as that would really sidetrack us. But if you want to talk about it later, please stick around after the service and you know, join us upstairs for a chat with the pastor. I'd be happy to get into it then. All right, so now that we've cleared that up, let's take a look at what's happening in this interaction. Jesus pulled Peter aside and warned him that during the events to come, Peter's faith might fail. I do not believe that Jesus did this to shame Peter in any way. Instead, I believe that Jesus hoped to help Peter better understand some of the challenges he might face during and in the aftermath of the trauma they were all about to endure. Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. Jesus genuinely hoped that Peter's faith would remain steadfast, but in the case that it were to waver, Jesus offered a way forward. If such an event were to take place, Jesus encouraged Peter to turn back and to use the experience to help strengthen his brothers in faith. By providing a way to continue on, it seems like Jesus wanted Peter to understand that such a failure would not define who he was at the core. And that not only was recovery possible, but Peter's failure could actually be transformed into something life-giving by becoming a source of strength for others. Peter was free to love and accept his authentic self After all, Jesus already did, and no flaw or failure would change that reality. Unfortunately, Peter was not able to take in any of the wisdom that Jesus had to offer that day. Peter responded to the mention of a potential weakness by saying, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. With this dramatic statement, it was like Peter was saying, Not only will my faith not fail, but 
but I will prove to you how incredibly strong my faith actually is. Essentially, he responded to Jesus with the equivalent of, well, I'll show you. Oftentimes, this kind of bravado is actually a mask for deep feelings of insecurity. Psychologist Lisa Bailey said, arrogance is rooted in insecurity, a defense from feelings of weakness that are unacceptable and unclaimed. An arrogant person generally has a skewed view of the world and a warped understanding of themselves. However, a confident person can accept their weaknesses or faults with grace, even though they may not like them. And this is where we return to our conversation about authenticity. As I discussed earlier, some of the key components of authenticity are honesty with oneself and others, self-awareness, and personal responsibility. In this passage, Peter did not demonstrate any of those qualities, but you know, we should give him credit for the fact that he did demonstrate other qualities that can help to foster a spirit of authenticity, like passion and decisiveness. Unfortunately, Peter's insecurity would not allow him to accept his weaknesses or faults with grace. He clung to his skewed sense of self and could not face the gap between the person he was in that moment and the person he aspired to be. Acknowledging and accepting this kind of gap is one of the most challenging aspects of striving to live authentically. After we identify our core values, an ongoing process that deserves a sermon of its own, the path of authenticity asks us to actually attempt to live our values out. And sometimes, for all sorts of reasons, the values or ideals that we hope to embody are out of reach, at least for now. For this reason, it can be helpful to think of authenticity not as a trait that you do or do not have, or as something to be achieved once for all time, but rather as a perpetual process of growth and maturation. With this mindset, it is okay, in fact, expected, that there will be a gap between who we are now and who we seek to be. This gap is not a sign of failure or a reason for alarm, but rather it is a critical source of information that can guide us in how to move forward in growth and maturity. Pursuing authenticity in this way allows us to live in the both and of accepting ourselves just as we are right now in this very moment and also seeking to more fully embody the truth of who we are and what we value. It allows us to acknowledge the reality that the self is dynamic, always learning, changing, and adapting. And it allows us to embrace the tension between standing firmly for what we believe in, while also keeping our hearts and minds open to new possibilities and perspectives. So back to the story. After Peter had his 
well, I'll show you moment, uh, Jesus tried to give Peter a reality check. Jesus attempted to help Peter see himself more clearly. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. And what Jesus predicted came to pass. After Jesus was arrested, Peter and another disciple entered the courtyard of the high priest. The woman who opened the gate said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. That was Peter's first denial. Later, still in the courtyard of the high priest, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They asked him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. That was Peter's second denial. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off while Jesus was being arrested, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it. And at the moment, and at that moment, the cock crowed. That was Peter's third denial, followed by the rooster's crow. Many of the narratives I've encountered about Peter's denials treat Peter very harshly for succumbing to his fear. In many ways, this criticism seems unfair to me. Of course, Peter was afraid. His close friend and teacher had been arrested, was being tortured, and was soon to be executed. Of course, he was afraid of enduring the same fate. To move toward pain, suffering, and death, even for the sake of unconditional agape love, is not natural. It requires supernatural strength. It even did for Jesus. As he awaited arrest, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Jesus did not want to suffer and die. He prayed, remove this cup from me. Jesus was in so much anguish that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Jesus was tended to and strengthened supernaturally by an angel. If it was that hard for Jesus, why are we surprised or disappointed that in the midst of terror, Peter's survival instincts kicked in? I, for one, do not hold it against Peter. And from what I can see in the Bible, Jesus didn't either. For one, if we return to the conversation that took place between Peter and Jesus during the Last Supper, it seems to me that Jesus was more concerned about the disparity between Peter's self-image and the reality of who he was in that moment than about the specifics of how Peter's faith might falter. Jesus expected Peter's faith to fail in some way. He was trying to prepare Peter for that eventuality. 
he was not asking Peter to follow him into torture and death at that particular moment. In fact, in the version of this conversation that we see in the book of John, Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus told Peter that he could not follow him now. He could not. So why do we place so much judgment on Peter's natural instinct for self-preservation? After Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples on various occasions. One day, he appeared to some of the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. As the disciples were fishing, Jesus appeared on the shore and performed a miracle by filling their nets with fish. Of course, once they realized it was Jesus, Peter jumped into the water and tried to beat the boat to shore. But the rest of the disciples were not far behind. Once on shore, Jesus and the disciples ate breakfast together. And after the meal, Jesus and Peter shared a private conversation. Their first since Peter had denied Jesus and Jesus had been killed. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. In the wake of Jesus' death, in the midst of uncertainty and in the shadow of his own perceived failure, Peter returned to his former occupation, that of a fisherman. Peter's reversion to his previous identity can also be seen in the name that Jesus used to address Peter. So we're back in the book of John now, so it is notable that Jesus was calling Peter Simon, son of John. Instead of calling Simon Peter by his new name as he had throughout their journeys together, Jesus once again called him Simon, the identity he had held before their first encounter. This theme was further emphasized when Jesus asked Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Based on the Greek grammar used in this sentence, there are three possibilities for what Jesus meant by these. So option one is, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Option two is, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? And the third option is, 
Do you love me more than you love these things, your fishing nets and equipment? So if option one is correct, Jesus would have been asking Simon Peter a pretty toxic and impossible question. So it seems really out of character that Jesus would encourage that kind of comparison and competition between the disciples. And furthermore, how could Simon Peter possibly have known if he loved Jesus more than the other disciples loved Jesus? That is an impossible question to answer from a human perspective. Option two also seems unlikely for a couple reasons. According to some scholars, if this was the intended meaning, there are clearer ways to express it in Greek than the words that were used. Additionally, the question seems out of place in terms of context. The answer to this question does not seem relevant to why Peter denied Jesus or to the topic that Jesus seems to be probing at, Simon Peter's thoughts about the future. So that means that option three is the most likely option. By asking, do you love me more than you love your fishing nets and equipment? Jesus may have been saying something like, Simon Peter, will you return to your former identity and way of life? It worked for you before, but does it still work for you now after all we've experienced together? Simon Peter, will you allow yourself to be sidelined by your own insecurities? Or will you continue following me in pursuit of unconditional agape love? Simon Peter, who do you want to be? Do you want to go back to being Simon? Or do you want to continue learning and discovering more about who Peter the Rock might be? Three times Jesus asked Simon Peter, do you love me? Simon Peter was hurt that Jesus asked three times, but I don't think that Jesus did this because he doubted Simon Peter's answer. After all, Jesus could see what was in Simon Peter's heart. Instead, it is more likely that the set of three questions corresponded to the three denials. One question for each denial. So then, was Jesus trying to hurt or shame Simon Peter to rub salt in his wounds? I don't think so. I believe that Jesus was helping Simon Peter to move forward, helping him to let go of any shame or guilt that he was carrying, whether that be as a result of his skewed self-assessment, his immature boasting, his insecurity, or his fear. By slowing Simon Peter down, Jesus was giving him space to really evaluate how he felt, what he believed, who he wanted to aim to be going forward, and what potential hardships he was willing to face. As he was giving Simon Peter an opportunity to convince himself of those things as well. Sometimes it can be incredibly powerful to hear ourselves say truths out loud. Sometimes it's even more powerful if we do so in the presence of a supportive witness. At the end of this passage, Jesus talked about the death that Peter would face. And this is what I find truly astounding. 
Peter may not have initially been able to follow Jesus into torture and death, but later in his life, he was able to do so. According to Christian tradition, Peter's execution was ordered by the Roman Emperor Nero, who blamed the city's Christians for a terrible fire that had ravaged Rome in 64 CE. Tradition also says that Peter was crucified upside down by request because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Does this sound like the same person to you? Well, in some ways, yes. Decisive, passionate, a flair for the dramatic. <laughs> check, check, check. And yet, this Peter is also different from his younger self. Over the years, Peter grew in inner strength and came to know what he stood for so clearly that he could overcome fear in order to embody supernatural authenticity. How did he do that? Of course, I believe that the power of God was involved, but I also don't think that we should downplay the power of slow, intentional, incremental change. For Peter, this kind of growth did not happen overnight. It happened over decades. We may not be facing the exact same risks as Peter, but like Peter, every time we choose to pursue authenticity, we are opening ourselves up to the possibility of discomfort and or harm. This is because to be authentic is to be vulnerable. Shame and vulnerability researcher Brene Brown defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Anytime we reveal our true selves, whether that be to others or even to our own consciousness, it is a form of exposure. Each time we are faced with the question, will I be met with judgment or unconditional agape love? The possibility of harm is real and absolutely worth acknowledging. It is important to exercise wisdom around where and with whom we share our precious, vulnerable selves. But we must also remember that with authenticity, there is the potential for deeper peace, joy, creativity, belonging, and connection. So to wrap up, if you would like to discuss today's sermon or anything else about faith or the river, please come upstairs uh, for a chat with the pastor. We will have tacos, and uh, it'll be a good time. So to close, um, I'd like to invite the worship team up here, and as I do, I'll end with a blessing written by Kate Bowler, author and professor at Duke Divinity School. God, I carry around this incompleteness, this drive for fulfillment that always seems just around the corner. If only I could get it together and find my true calling, my real passion, or the right plan. God, help me, guide me, what am I missing? Blessed are we who strive earnestly to change ourselves and the world around us, but feel the drag and pull of what won't budge, 
the weight of all our limited and frail humanity. We carry it with us. Blessed are we, the hungry, in lives that are both too much and not enough, willing to tell the truth to ourselves and to each other that we languish here in what is perhaps the central paradox of our condition, that we hunger for more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. To be fully known and fully loved in all our humanity, and that is a God-sized project. Blessed are we, thankful that we can live our human-sized lives in the glad company of the vulnerable and the broken, the imperfect made whole in the love of God through Jesus Christ. Maybe it's right to be hungry and stay that way.